Hello, friends. We are back of episode 132 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. This is your one-stop audio shop for learning all the great happenings around the R community as we document it on each R Weekly issue. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I'm joined by the MVP of this podcast, probably more so than ever this morning, my great co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Eric, uh, probably because I have some caffeine on board. And one thing I just found out, dear listeners, is Eric, for all that he does in the art community at all hours of the day and night, does not drink coffee or consume any sort of caffeine. Just your wild stat of the day. Yep, the wild stat, but hopefully I can find more, you know, invigorating ways, such as recording this podcast to get my creative juices and waking up juices going, I guess, if you want to call it that. (laughs) Let's dive right into it, shall we? We are talking about our latest issue for week 32 that's been curated by John Calder, number one of our long, longtime contributors. And he had a little help from yours truly just to push the magic button to pu- merge the poll request. But hey, this is an advertisement for Git and GitHub if it isn't already. He had everything set to go before he went on a nice little family vacation, made it super easy for me. Just hit that magic merge button, and we are good once we got our highlights. So happy to help out, John, and hope you enjoyed your well-deserved time off. But as always, he had tremendous help from fellow Art Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world. And we're going to lead things off with something that's near and dear to my heart, curation of content, especially of the multimedia variety, and also putting those fun little web APIs to work for you to create a unique product. Now, as we've had this age since the pandemic, we've been very fortunate that many of the meetups around the world in respect to R have been meeting not only virtually, but also recording their sessions for viewing later on so that those of us that weren't able to attend live or maybe it was an in-person meetup that they recorded afterwards, we get to check out all the fun happenings that they've been talking about. And most of those recordings are posted on YouTube, no surprise there, including the critically acclaimed and well-renowned Our Ladies organization, where they have a multitude of chapters now spread out across the entire world. Oftentimes, these uh, specific chapters will have their own channels on YouTube. And again, posting their videos afterwards so we all can view it later on. But boy, it sure would be nice if there was one place that we could access all of the, say, Our Ladies chapter recordings without having to hunt around, search in YouTube and in bookmark and rinse and repeat. Well, Isabel Velasquez, Senior Product Manager at Posit, has been thinking about that very same thing. And in our first highlight, she ties in the ideas of, a, of using a web API to do the work for you to grab information automate the processing of this information and to serve it up in a nice, friendly, serverless client-side interface with our markdown, of course. So how does this all work here? We're going to take this bit by bit, as Isabella does in the blog post. The first step is to assemble, in her case, a simple CSV with all the channel IDs of these various Our Ladies chapters. Doesn't have to be very fancy, just a simple spreadsheet will do where you start finding the ones that you want to put into this unique dashboard that she's going to build later on. Now, as I said, we want the web API to do the work for us. Well, YouTube, like any many other Google uh, services, has an API 
And guess what? There is an R package called Tuber that lets you authenticate to the YouTube API. And actually, the authentication with the API is quite recent and, in fact, came from a couple pull requests from Isabella herself as she was working on this project. So there's another win for not only, you know, contributing back to the community, but also instead of her making her own package to do it, she's just enhancing Tuber so that we all can benefit from the API authentication. That became important in this context because it is true that if you know where to look, you can get, in essence, a quasi-RSS feed for YouTube videos, but it's only going to show you the most recent, say, 10 or 15. If you want to go back in the archive of a channel, you're, gonna, you're back to the manual work unless you use the authentication with the API. So Isabella's post has some nice setup instructions for how you can get your API key, how you can get Tuber to recognize that for the authentication. And then Isabella creates a very tidy uh, data processing script and associated function to grab a various channels uh, YouTube video links, again, using the API, and then do a little massaging of the various links and metadata that were produced, and then create, again, a tidy data frame structure where you've got the key metadata, such as published date of the videos, links to the video itself, links to the channel, and again, looks very clean and mostly automated with that script. Now comes the real fun part. Yeah, we got a nice, in essence, data frame of all these links, but let's serve this up. Let's make it very useful so that you could just point your browser somewhere and find this nice, uh, nice data frame as a table front and center in the in the uh, web page itself. And that's where Flex Dashboard comes in. Flex Dashboard, for those of you that aren't aware, has been the R Markdown um, method to create an interactive dashboard, all entire client side. You could put Shiny in it, but you don't have to. And in this case, we don't have to because she takes advantage of the DT library. Again, one of the biggest mainstays in terms of surfacing tabular data and things like our markdown reports, quartal documents, shiny apps, you name it. DT has been supporting all of that. So Isabella creates a very intuitive flex dashboard with a little customization on theming. Thanks to BS lib. Another fun moment of this post to me is seeing that BS lib. I knew this already, but it's great to reinforce this. BS lib is not just for shiny. You can theme our markdown documents just as easily. So this Flex dashboard has been, you know, a little bit of custom theming thanks to BSLib, which makes it look even more polished. And then very simple to surface this tidy data frame as a DT widget so that when you view this table and you see the links to the various videos and the channels, you can actually click the link because she was able to what we call escape the HTML so that it is actually rendered in a link fashion so when you click the link it actually opens as a new tab in your browser it doesn't even overtake the existing table that's a nice little touch you can find that in the code too in the html snippets it's what they call target equal blank or something like that always target equal blank always always buddy always because who wants to take over somebody's existing web page i want to keep it nice and clean for everybody which uh by the way you can also do that for your Quartal stuff, too. There's a little option to make it so that every link you put in Quartal is a target blank. 
we're going to use that in our workshop, Mike. Hint, hint. <laughs> the more you know. No, give me all the browser tabs. Of course, yeah, because I, I think the hundreds too few. That's how much I have rocking my laptop currently. But in any event, it's great that this is very intuitive as a view of these uh, video metadata. Now, sure, Isabella could every day remind herself, you know what? Oh, you know, I need to refresh that data and I need to redeploy the, the Flex dashboard. And I have to boot up our studio, maybe hit the nit button and run my data processing script and, and republish or repush the repo. No, 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 no. It's 2023. Let's let the GitHub Actions robots do the work for us because she has set up a custom GitHub Action that is solely tasked with A, finding the R package dependencies of this project, which she has neatly documented as a description file. Even though this app is not a package per se, or this web page is not a package, you can still use a description file as a way to capture all your dependencies like any other R package would. So she's got that set up. So the GitHub action will inspect that, install all the packages up front, and then run the data processing script and then recompile the Flex dashboard document. Very intuitive. This is I very clearly explained in Isabella's post. So if you're new to GitHub Actions, this is a great little showcase about why it might be worth your time to invest in a platform like this to automate this manual effort that you would have to do before, say a few years ago, unless you are a Linux expert and love your cron jobs, you can use GitHub Actions to automate a lot of that work for you. So and the best part is you can view this Flex Dashboard Our Ladies YouTube aggregator right away in the blog post. She has a direct link to it and it's updated daily. So it's a great way to keep in touch with the great uh, happenings that are happening across the Our Ladies chapters. And again, you, have, you only have to go to one place get the direct links and be on your way. Now, as a self-professed open source and, and Linux enthusiast, I would, I would not want to complete my summary of this about telling you about other ideas that this spurred on for me and some resources that I found recently that could take this to even another level. If you're interested, say, if you have content on YouTube or if there's somebody you follow on YouTube and you want to you know, have your own way of viewing these videos. I'll put a, a plug um, in the supplements of the show notes to a, a open source software called Tube Archivist, which will let you, in essence, grab a channel, grab all of its videos, and deploy that on your own local media. This can be handy because there are sometimes, like any cloud-based platform, something like YouTube might go down for whatever reason, and this would be a great way if you're your own content creator might know a thing or two about that it sure would be nice to just have backups of that just in case anything goes haywire so again link in the show notes kind of ancillary to what isabel has done here but in any event there are lots of great tooling available to aggregate uh great media content so great kind of showcase of like i said three principles what web web apis do work for you to grab information Use the tools like GitHub Actions to rerun the manual steps of, you know, re-executing the data processing and then also leverage the, the great ecosystem to create friendly dashboards. And in this case, a Flex dashboard from our markdown. A great post to tie us all together. 
And Isabel, you probably just introduced me yet more ways I can spend my time during my uh, kids' activities, maybe catching up on the Yard Ladies meetup. So great job, Isabel, and um, great to see you return to the highlights. Well, first and foremost, I had no idea that there were this many Our Ladies chapters, which is incredible. I knew that there were a lot, but it looks like there are almost 40 different chapters throughout the world, which is absolutely fantastic. I also had no idea that there was a YouTube API. Uh, And of course, if there's an API, there's an R package to wrap it. In this case, like you said, it's the Tuber package for getting video statistics, uh, comments on the video, even video captions and more, which I think is really interesting and and potentially useful. Um, Her GitHub action runs every 24 hours, meaning that the the Flex dashboard webpage updates the videos there every 24 hours in the event that the CSV changes. And just a couple notes about the blog post. I got to love the Quarto code annotations uh, for stepping through each line of Isabella's data processing script. That was really, really helpful because there's some tricky HTML uh, wrangling within dplyr that's going on there. And one thing I thought was pretty interesting as well was the GitHub Actions YAML file, particularly how dependencies were handled. So it utilizes a description file, as you said, containing the dependency packages in the imports section of the file. Uh, even talks about, uh, even details using the public RStudio package manager. And then there's this little extra line called with extra packages, this section of the YAML file that allows you to specify a package from GitHub uh, instead of from a package manager. And in this case, uh, all you had to supply was sort of the extension of that GitHub uh, repository where the Tuber R package exists, which is really cool. So fantastic blog post, uh, great summary, Eric. And you just absolutely got to love using Flex Dashboard for deploying something serverless. With that said, you and I, of course, love our shiny apps. How could we not? Well, we're not left in the dark, my friend, because our next highlight is taking this up quite a few notches to take advantage of the latest developments in the world of WebAssembly with a very practical hands-on guide on how you can create and deploy serverless shiny apps on your website or perhaps even your own WordPress blog. And what are we talking about here? Well, we're happy to say that our next highlight coming from Vera Land Limput has a terrific step-by-step guide on how you can take advantage of this very fast-moving landscape of WebAssembly in R to deploy a very quick and fun shiny application again either on a standalone site or in this case, even embedded into an existing WordPress blog. Now, Vera, first, I want to say congratulations to you because you just published your first screencast on using async processing and shiny. We'll have a link to that in the supplements because that is very handy um, tutorial for us uh, shiny um, enthusiasts out there. So have a watch at that. But needless to say, that's actually going to come and play a little bit indirectly with this post here because there is a bit of work involved to get set up for this. In essence, WebAssembly, you wanna make sure that this is being run on the client side 
when they view the web page, but that it's going to inject in an asynchronous fashion the way to bootstrap the dependencies of the application using pre-compiled packages that are available in what's called the WebR uh, front end to WebAssembly in the R language. And that's been created by George Stegg, a posit software engineer. It is a multi-step approach. So Mike, why don't you walk us through kind of the different steps you saw here and how this might translate to us that want to try this out for our fun, shiny apps. Sure. So it looks like Virla has resurrected her blog, Hypebrite, for providing us with some amazing tutorials on WebR and Shiny. And just to start, I can't tell you how many links to Virla's posts and tutorials I have been helped by in the past. At this point, it's it's just about required reading for me whenever she posts content. Uh, so for others in the R ecosystem trying to work at the, the cutting edge, uh, she had some fantastic tutorials about hosting uh, plumber APIs within the Azure uh, platform, which was really helpful to me since a lot of our clients use Azure and we're deploying a lot of plumber apps these days. But, but uh, all I can say is that she is really leading the charge at some of these these cutting edge technologies when it comes to R. And I think Shiny and WebAssembly and WebR is, is no exception because while there's been much to do made about Shiny Live for Shiny for Python to be able to deploy serverless apps where everything is on the client side, deploying Shiny apps via WebAssembly within the R framework has mostly been a community-led conversation and is still very much uh, a lot of the wild, wild west. So anyone who can make a foothold for us to grab onto in terms of blog posts, uh, presentations, as I think you'll, you'll, you'll mention as well. I know there's some others in this space, particularly Bob Rudis, who are sort of trying to, to lead the charge and uh, again, lay a lot of the groundwork for those of us who are trying to potentially leverage uh, Shiny and WebAssembly. So I really appreciate anyone, including Birla, who are, are taking the time to really dive through a lot of uncharted territory for us. So in, in her blog post, the, the app that she creates is essentially deployed as an iframe, um, really embedded within the web page. It took about nine seconds for the iframe app to load, and Virla has actually some some really nifty and nice uh, loading buttons that tell you exactly what is going on as the app loads, and it's it's really pretty. Um, so I, I think that nine seconds, which really I think mostly revolves around uh, installing the R packages necessary for the app to get up and running, isn't bad. It, it's pretty snappy in terms of I, what I have seen thus far in terms of shiny apps being deployed this way via WebAssembly, uh, sort of quasi serverless. So of course, to make all of this work, it's, it's a combination of not only R, uh, but some HTML and some JavaScript code as well. But there are some really nice templates uh, that make it so that you don't have to completely roll your own if you want to do something similar to what Virla's put together. And Virla does an amazing job of walking you through exactly what is going on in these HTML and JavaScript uh, code templates that you need to host the Shiny app on any website. I believe in her case, it's it's WordPress, um, but it could be any website. And deploying an app you know, as an iframe within a web page is nice for toy examples within a blog post. Um, but 
this approach probably isn't super practical when it comes to larger apps. And we would want them to be deployed as, as standalone apps, I would imagine, backed by, backed by a server, at least where we are in the progress of WebR and WebAssembly. So I'm sure that's a much larger conversation, and I'm sure you have probably a, a few thoughts on that as well, Eric. But it's nice to see some starting points for us uh, laid out here in terms of being able to use R uh, and, and WebR and, and really deploy these apps uh, in a serverless environment via WebAssembly. Yeah, there are some interesting challenges to overcome here, as like you said, in the R space of WebAssembly, we don't have the convenience of a shiny live yet. I do think that's being worked on and hopefully I'll even get more information about that firsthand in a couple of weeks. But the some of the key points that Virla had to overcome here are the fact that with the shiny process requiring its own custom WebSocket communication back and forth, she actually had to somehow map it so that this iframe on the WordPress site could get that information that's being transferred back and forth in the Shiny app that the user would be, in this case, is a fun little hangman app, is entering the letters and then pressing the button, seeing if the guess was correct or not. So there's a lot of bookkeeping involved to make sure that communication is happening from the web, the user's portal of viewing it into the back-end JavaScript process, which I think is launched in an asynchronous way. But one of the ways this happens is that George Stegg had just released a proof of concept of a WebR hosted Shiny app, and it takes advantage of something called a service worker JavaScript process. That kind of is like going back to async, an asynchronous way to keep this communication open between what the user's clicking and what the JavaScript um, site backend of the site is actually doing. So. I won't pretend to be able to explain all that. There's a lot of nuggets here, but Vero does a great job of, once she shows a snippet of JavaScript, talking about the different pieces step-by-step step and why they're important. So it'll take a, it's going to take a couple read-throughs to really um, get through the technical bits. But once you do, as you said, Mike, the framework here, whether iframe or not, for a simple app, I think is very generalizable. Now, we are definitely at the early stages. This is not going to replace some of my biggest production apps at my company because we have very intricate processing, either with complex data sources, leveraging HPC backends and whatnot, bringing that all back together. Those are truly platforms in and of themselves. I think someday we might get there here, but I think to start, ironing out, the, the nooks and crannies, so to speak, of deployment and just how these packages are being sourced into a WebR Power Shiny app. Those are the biggest hurdles as we speak. And um, you mentioned his name earlier, but if you want to know the history of where WebR has been and where, we, where it's going, but also some of the great potential you can have with this, we'll have a link to Bob Rudis's recent New York R conference presentation about the Web R universe, if you want to call it that. And he dives into a lot of the innovations that George Stegg has been leading in this effort and the ways that you can take advantage of this, where you can still use R to do some data munging and data processing, but you could either use Shiny like what Vero is doing here. You could use something like Vue.js instead as your JavaScript front end for display. There, the possibilities are almost endless. 
And yes, you can even do WebR, WebAssembly in Quartal documents now. How cool is that? Then we'll have a link to a prototype of that, I believe, in the show notes as well. So there's lots of potential here. I think we're still early. If you've been doing building shiny apps at your day job, that in terms of the quote-unquote traditional infrastructure, we're not replacing that. That, that is still going to have its place because you can only do so much on the client side in today's current landscape. But, boy, when you think about teaching you think about ways to deploy a simple, you might say, a self-contained version of an app that doesn't depend on external data, it doesn't depend on a high-performance machine learning backend or HPC backend. There's tremendous potential here, so much so that I have a very important people from a highly regulated part of the government that are very interested in this method, which I am working on as we speak. So there's a lot of optimism here. And Vero does a terrific job of giving us that that launching point to take us even further. Absolutely. And I do want to note that I did uh, successfully solve Vero's hangman challenge uh, on my first try. So, you know, big, big kudos to me. That's better than me. Last night, I uh, failed miserably on my first time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I watched I a lot of Wheel of Fortune, for what it's worth. <laughs> yes, I, I do have. My kids used to watch that a lot, and I actually have all the recordings from like years ago on that hard drive that's sitting about 15 feet from me, but they've outgrown it, unfortunately. But, you know, they don't pay me the big bucks for guessing letters, unfortunately. <laughs> no, absolutely. But uh, again, this is a great blog post by, by Virla, and I think it's a great start introduction into Shiny with WebAssembly. But uh, I think the next thing really to come is, is improved performance, right? Yes, performance, and you could not have uh, teed that up for me any better because there is a great last highlight today about a new, you might call challenger in the world of high-performance data manipulation that, again, one of the reasons I love the R-Wiki project so much, I somehow have been living under a rock and did not hear about this framework until now, but boy, I'm sure glad I have. And what we're talking about here is a data manipulation library called Polars. This is an open source library written in, wait for it, Rust, which is getting a lot of more momentum in the realm of open source software and now more recently data science. And I have not heard about Polars before. I did a little, you know, patented research before we recorded this. Polars was written by software engineer, now data scientist, Richie Vink, who during the time of the pandemic saw an opportunity where at that time the Rust landscape did not have a very robust um, data manipulation library. Well, R has them, Python has them, why not Rust? Hence Polars was born. And what's very interesting about Polars is that now we have an R binding to Polars called Polars R, which again, piggybacks off of the Rust implementation to bring those high-performance data manipulation gains to the R ecosystem. And this last highlight is a cookbook to get you started up and running with the Polars, uh, 
polars R package in the world of R. Now this, again, the syntax here is going to look a little different. Now if you've been using frameworks like data.table or dplyr with its, you know, pipe syntax, um, it is going to look a little different. But I think once you get the hang of it, it is something that you can definitely grok. Um, and the cookbook has some very logical side-by-side -side code examples of how you might do basic data manipulation. In fact, the second chapter on data manipulation talks about very simple things of doing group by summaries. Um, also other derivations of columns and, and everything like that. And this is, book is written in Quartal, of course, so you get these nice tab views of seeing the polar syntax of data manipulation, but then how you would do it in base R, how you would do it in dplyr, and yes, how you would do it in data.table as well. So you can really literally see side by side how this compares. Now, like I said, this will probably take a little getting used to, but there is a lot of excitement with this library and in particular, when you get to the benchmarking section, there are some very intriguing benchmarks here that put the performance of Polars right up there, sometimes exceeding the performance of data.table and dplyr for both in-memory data sets as well as those that have, been, um, that have been backed by something like Feather or Parquet files. There are benchmarks along those lines too. Now, again, maybe the biggest disadvantage is learning yet another new syntax for using the Polar's library. But what I've also learned, and in fact, it's also in the R Weekly issue itself, this is a good little kind of companion to this cookbook, is there is a package called Tidy Polar's, which will give you the familiar Tidyverse syntax with Polar's as the back end. This package is literally meant to translate the dplyr syntax verbs such as select, mutate, and the like into the DSL, if you will, of polars on the fly and then execute the polars R package as if you wrote that syntax natively. So that might be an even easier way for you to get started with polars if you're interested in exploring this. So we'll have a link to that package, uh, tidy polars, into the supplements of the show notes as well. So I'm intrigued by it. I, again, never heard about Polaris until doing the, the research for this, but it could be a great alternative to data manipulation if you're looking for something that's based in a different language. But it'll be interesting to see where this matures and where this takes a stronger footprint in the R ecosystem. So lots of optimism around this, and it's great to learn another tool in our toolbox for high-performance data manipulation and a lot of the Linux podcasts I listen to seem to give me a plug for a new Rust open source library every week. So it's great that the R users aren't left in the dark on this. So little, little fun with Rust yet again. So Mike, you were the one that clued me in at the pre-show that I was living under the rock about Polars. What did you think about this? Well, Polars, this is definitely a project that I've had my eye on for a while. It's, it's like you said, it's an open source library for working with data frames written in Rust and has some of the fastest execution time benchmarks against data of all sizes. Uh, of course, it's built on top of the Apache Arrow project, like everything else, high performance 
these days. I think the Python library port came first, as often happens, uh, but I'm so glad that we have a port in R as well. And in terms of the book, Obviously, it's an open source Cordo book, even better, as you mentioned, it's a book with tab sets that allow you to switch between seeing a data manipulation step performed via Polar's code, base R, dplyr, or data.table, which is absolutely awesome. So huge hat tip to Damian Dada for creating this incredible resource. Again, you know, it's all about having multiple ways to do the same thing and choosing the best method that works for your particular use case. So if you're someone who's looking to author content that provides multiple ways to do the same thing, I can't think of a better example uh, than this book in the accompanying repo. I think I saw a Mastodon exchange with Max Kuhn recently about creating a new edition of his predictive modeling book that has side-by-side code with tidy models and carrot. So Max, if you are out there listening today, uh, this book and repo might help. The syntax, as you mentioned, for, for the R polars package may look a, a little different. You know, each data manipulation function, you know, such as group by, filter, sum, et cetera, is a method, uh, meaning that you would write code such as my data frame, dollar sign, group by, dollar sign, sum. So it's, it's very object-oriented style code. And as you said, to compare it to other frameworks, it's almost like you're replacing your pipes with dollar signs in your, your dplyr chains. And polars is... Absurdly fast, I believe it eagerly takes advantage of parallel processing across cores of the machine that it's executing on, which is different than a lot of the data manipulation frameworks uh, that we uh, currently work with in terms of at least non-cloud frameworks, right? Which, so it's great to have this option on our, our local machine. And it's, it's great if you have production processes that require the least amount of data processing time as possible, such as an, an API that really needs a lot of low latent, latency. And there's some really interesting comparisons across Polars, Aero, DuckDB, dplyr, data.table, and, and base R in the benchmarks uh, section of the book. So I would encourage folks to, to check that out if you're interested in seeing how Polars sort of stacks up against some of the other data manipulation frameworks that you're currently using or interested in. Yeah, another intriguing part of this book that I saw last night when I was researching this is the idea of lazy execution with Polars. Another great way to save potential processing and memory footprint if you're doing a chain of operations together but you don't necessarily want to execute them eagerly step by step. You can take advantage of Polar's figuring out the best way to execute those multiple queries at once. If it's like selecting a few columns, then doing a filtering, doing another manipulation, there's a chapter specifically on the lazy execution um, framework. That was new to me. That That, that is a pretty nice, um, it may not work for every use case, but boy, that can eke out even more performance gains if you have a more complex operation for your pipeline. So there's lots, a lot under the hood here that I think is really promising as we think about, you know, more higher dimension data sets or coming from other sources and the best way to minimize our memory footprint, eke out that extra performance when we have access to say multiple cores or other systems. So this, this is really intriguing to me. I'm definitely going to want to have a play with this later in the year as I think about in my daily work, we generate a lot of our virtual data and it's often a bunch of data because of Bayesian model inferences or Bayesian model fits and being able to quickly summarize that in a high performing way is, is huge for, for what I'm doing these days. So I am 
I am very interested to see where this goes. And again, what a showcase for um, the cookbook itself to really put side by side these different Im implementations. Great, great model to follow. So Damien, um, haven't seen your name pop up before, but welcome to the highlights. This is a, a terrific, <laughs> a terrific debut for you. This is a, a terrific cookbook and can't wait to see if it even gets enhanced further down the road. Absolutely. Thank you, Damien. Yep. And what else gets enhanced? Well, our curators enhance every Art Weekly issue. We have a lot of great content that John has curated for us. So we'll take a couple minutes for our additional fine segment here. And one of the themes that we've had reoccurring on this very show, probably the whole year especially, is the idea of reproducibility in not only your R code, but your R code environment as well, especially with package management. Well, our first, uh, my additional find here is a blog post about using the date back package as an alternative to the previous service that Microsoft offer called MRAN as a way to, in essence, transform where the packages are being installed from um, using the date back package itself, where you give it a simple install command name of the package, and then the date that you want to use as a snapshot. It will grab the appropriate dependencies for you. Um, this looks pretty promising. I mean, it's just one additional tool in the toolbox of reproducibility. So I'll be checking that out probably later on. And of course, the other thing I'm checking out, um, and we have an additional bonus additional find for me, is that Bruno Rodriguez continues his rabbit hole adventure of NixOS for our analytics reproducibility so he's got yet another uh part in his escapade and it's a great great reading as well so reproducibility has become a huge focus on many levels this year great to see alternatives in this space for you to investigate for your um, analysis reproducibility later on yeah bruno is continuing his crusade to render docker obsolete it looks like so. <laughs> I found a blog post uh, by Christian Lorenzen and Michael Mayer, who are both actuaries, it looks like potentially out of Switzerland, um, who have recently authored a brand new R package called HStats for computing and visualizing uh, interactions between terms in your predictive model. Um, so I think that this is a space that is super important because if you're working with a model that's, that's not necessarily linear, uh, it's difficult to quantify or understand the potential strength or, or lack thereof uh, of the interactions between the terms in your models. So when it comes to trying to make ML black box models explainable, understanding these different interactions between the terms within your model, I think is super important. So check out the new HStats package. It is super lightweight. It imports only three dependencies, two of which are stats and utils, and the third of which is ggplot2. So super lightweight, really nicely written package. Uh, and I am excited to try it out in my machine learning adventures. What a great find, Mike. Yeah, because that is something that's come up time and time again as my group is starting to get more into this space. I detest sometimes this black box mentality trying to explain this to leadership of, 
yeah, why did that term come up more than others? Oh, uh, well, model said so. No, we, we, we need better. We need better explanation than that. I'm not, I didn't get a PhD in stats just to say, well, the model said so. No, I got We got to find better ways to translate that. So I think H, H stat is going to be a great way to make that happen. What a, what a great find. I'm going to be checking this out too, for sure. Always plenty of gold in the R weekly. Yes, and um, if you like seeing these nuggets of wisdom in, in each issue, we love to have your contributions, too, from all of you around the world. The easiest way to do that, if you find a great tutorial or if you yourself have authored a great tutorial, blog post, a new package that's entered the R ecosystem, a great showcase of reproducibility, I could go on and on. But it's all available um, to curate for these issues. And the best way to get it into these issues is via a pull request to the draft of the upcoming issue. You can find all of that at rweekly.org. And also, if you're interested in joining our team, we have details at rweekly.org, especially our GitHub repo for joining our team. We'd love to have you join us. We definitely have a few spots open um, with the... Kind of usual take in open source, right? You have people come and go. Life takes priority. We love to have new members join us if you're interested. And also this audio podcast, could love to hear from you as well. You can get in touch with us with the contact page directly into the episode show notes, a direct link there. You can also with a modern podcast app like, say, Podverse, Fountain, or Castomatic. You can send us a little boost along the way with your fun message. We'd love to read it on the show if you send that to us. And also, if you want to get in touch with us on the various social media outlets, the the other thing, you can find me there if you really want. But honestly, I'm going to plug Mastodon more now. Um, I am at our podcast, at podcastindex.social. Starting to get more engaged here, especially as I get more back up and running with the community efforts. Um, lots of cool things to talk about. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Yeah, so I guess it's it's still Twitter.com, even though it's called X. I, I <laughs> probably wouldn't recommend typing X.com into your work PC browser. I don't know what would happen. Um, so, but thank you uh, to Dr. Phil Barter, who reached out on Twitter this week, uh, telling us that, that we did a great episode, enjoyed the socials part, and asked if we had checked out the GG Density package. So I will plug that uh, for allowing a color gradient to the points in your scatter plot, as opposed to that sort of black mess of overplotting that we discussed last week. So that's a package by James Otto and a great call out. Thank you, uh, Dr. Phil Barter, for, for uh, sending us that message on Twitter. That's, that's one that we definitely missed, but I'm glad that we were able to highlight it and, and take a look at, at your message. So uh, on Twitter, you can find me Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K and Mastodon at uh, Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. We've, we've rambled enough, but hopefully we gave you enough for your listening pleasure this week. And we will be back with another episode of our weekly highlights next week. Hello, friends. We're back with episode 132 of our weekly highlights. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I'm delighted that you join us for another fun installment this morning. And for all your great... Oh, what the F was that? Okay, we're going to do that again. Okay. Hello, friends. We are back. Ah! You get... <laughs> we should keep all this. Don't cut any of this. <laughs> <laughs>